Amen. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Numbers chapter 21. Uh, it gives us a story, tells us a story of a, an Old Testament type where God delivered his people uh, from um, sickness that was caused by their own uh, actions, their own words against God. And it uh, serves as a type of Jesus and his work on the cross. Numbers chapter 21, the first uh, few verses of the chapter tell us about how God delivered Israel um, uh, delivered the Canaanites into Israel's hands, and they won a great victory. And it says in verse 4, beginning in verse 4, Numbers chapter 21, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or encircle the land of Edom, to go around the land, in other words. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Now, that's uh, the light bread he's talking about is the manna that God has provided for him. I want you to notice what, uh, what the purpose of discouragement is. The people were discouraged because the way was tough. And what was their first response? To speak against God and, his, and Moses and the promises and God's provision and so forth. The reason that the devil wants you to be discouraged is because he's trying to get in your mouth. That's one reason why you have to fight discouragement, resist discouragement, and recognize it for what it is so that it doesn't change your tune, so that it doesn't influence your words. Now, in verse 6, it's, uh, the translators translate this into the causative sense. This is one of those verbs where uh, Dr. Young talks about that's translated in the, in the causative sense when it really should be in the permissive sense. It says, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses. Notice verse 7. It's going to answer verse 6 for you. Verse 7 says, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. They did not say, God is out to get us. They did not say, we don't understand why this is happening, but God must have some greater purpose, some higher purpose in this than we can uh, ascertain. He must be trying to teach us something. Now, they realized it was a result of their own actions. They realized they're the ones that stepped out from under God's protection. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 15, I think it's verse 15, it's Deuteronomy 8 anyway, talks about how that Moses is speaking to the people and reminding them of God delivering them from Egypt. And he said, he led you through the wilderness where there were fiery serpents. Folks, the supernatural part is not that the fiery serpents came into the camp and bit the people. The supernatural part is, why is this the only time that it happened? The answer is because God protected them. Every time that that they stayed in his uh, operating according to his commands or stayed within his bubble of protection, if you'll allow me to say it that way, then they stayed safe from the evil that was all around them. But when they stepped out from under that and spoke against God, against Moses, and said, why did God do this? Why are we out here in the wilderness? Moses, why did you bring us out here? Then the fiery serpents came in. And bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Then, therefore, again, verse 7, the people said to Moses, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. They knew what the answer was. Get God to keep these things away from us. And the only reason that they weren't away from them and were attacking them at that point in time was because of their own sin. Are you with me? Verse 8. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Please notice that phrase. When he looks upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. 
Now, folks, this, uh, this phrase, when he looketh upon it, the instruction that God gives, or really the condition that God gives, is looking upon it. You need to realize, and it's easy to see, Jesus speaks of this himself in uh, John chapter 3. He talks about, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. So if we didn't know anything else, just by what Jesus said, we could understand that this is a type, an Old Testament type in Numbers chapter 21. The serpent of brass on the pole is an Old Testament type that Jesus fulfilled when he went to the cross. When he was talking about the Son of Man being lifted up, he's talking about going to the cross. Now notice what the people need. They need two things. They need healing from the snake bite, but they also need forgiveness from their sins. They said very clearly in verse 7, we've sinned. Well, there's got to be an answer for sin, doesn't there? I mean, it's not just a matter of we've sinned, heal us. We need not only to be forgiven of the sin, we need to be healed of the snake bite. The poisonous, fiery serpents, that's what it means. It means poisonous snakes. We need forgiveness and we need healing. And the type that God gave Moses for them, for, the, for their answer specifically in their situation that was taking place at the time and the example for us to look back on and understand was very simply the type of Jesus on the cross. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. If people are correct in saying today that healing was not a part of Jesus' work on the cross, the way that it's usually stated in, in uh, theological circles is that healing is not part of the atonement. The atonement that they're referring to is really an Old Testament term. But the atonement that is usually referred to in, in that context is the sacrifice of Jesus as our Savior. And many people in the church world, you know as well as I do, will say that Jesus died for our sins, but he didn't die for our sicknesses. If that's the case, then why does the Old Testament type show the serpent of brass as being the answer for both sins and sickness? If Jesus did not fulfill this Old Testament type, of being the answer for sin and sickness, then the Old Testament type is greater than Jesus himself. The Old Testament type for Israel was greater than the work of Jesus on the cross that he accomplished in his own flesh. Wouldn't that have to be true? Well, of course it's true. I don't believe that this example in the Old Testament is on higher ground than Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you? Now notice the condition. The condition was that nobody would receive unless the one that look upon the serpent. The condition was to look. Now, looking means to be occupied and influenced with what we're looking at. It doesn't just mean a casual glance. It means to be influenced by what you see. It's the equivalent of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, refusing to consider his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old. He's being influenced by what he's looking at. The Bible says in the American Standard Version especially, I like that. It says, looking under the promise of God, he staggered or wavered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what God had promised he was able also to perform. What kept Abraham from staggering in his faith when he was way too old to have a child, when Sarah was way too old to have a child, what kept them from staggering or wavering or being double-minded any of these are applicable terms where their faith was concerned. There's one and only one thing, and that is they looked unto the word of promise. They beheld the word of promise. Just like the children of Israel were supposed to beheld, behold or look upon the serpent of brass, they beheld and looked at and allowed themselves to be influenced by the promise. Being occupied or influenced by your feelings is the exact reverse of the very conditions God outlines. 
Looking also means to give attention to. We've talked a lot about Mark chapter 4 where Jesus gives the story, the parable of the sower sowing the word. We found very clearly and Jesus teaches very specifically that the word of God is the seed. And when the seed is planted in good ground, then it produces results. What determines whether or not it gets planted and kept in good ground? The attention you give to it. Jesus said, take heed what you hear. The attention that you give to the word is that condition that makes possible the planting of the seed, which has more than enough power for whatever you need it to produce. The condition that puts it in the good ground and the attending to the word is what keeps it in the good ground so that it can produce the results you need. The devil does not have the power. Please listen to me. The devil does not have the power to keep the seed, to prevent the seed from producing the results unless you let him take it out of the ground. Now, how does he do that? By distraction. By diverting your attention to something else. So attending not only means to be influenced and occupied by what we're looking at, but it means to give attention to something. You know, it's interesting, uh, uh, the book of Jonah, we don't talk a whole lot about Jonah other than Bible stories and Sunday school stories and stuff like that. But Jonah called his situation a lying vanity. In the belly of the great fish, Jonah said that these things that were around him, these circumstances that were around him, the seaweed wrapped around his head, the, the acid in the, the fish's stomach that was eating away his flesh, he called those circumstances his condition, his living conditions, he called lying vanities. And in the middle of the fish's belly, he said, I will look toward thy holy temple. Folks, what you look at determines everything in your life. Looking also means expectation. You don't look for anything that you don't expect to receive. Jesus, or I'm sorry, Peter and John Remember at the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3, they went and the crippled man was there. Peter said, look on us. And the man gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something from them. Now, the man thought they were going to give him money because that's what he was begging for. But that's when Peter said, with John standing right there, such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Because the man was expecting to receive something. He may not have known what he was going to get, but he was expecting to receive something. Since God has provided and promised healing for us, we should dismiss from our minds the slightest thought of failing to be healed. That's what expectation is about. Expectation is about holding fast to something because you know the truth. The word look also is is translated consider. The Bible says uh, of Sarah, Abraham's wife, when she was 90 years old, way past childbearing years, or age. It says in Hebrews, talking about Sarah as part of the Heroes Hall of Fame, it says that Sarah considered that she could rely upon him who promised. King James says she judged him faithful who had promised. But that's what that word means. It means she considered. She considered that he was faithful who promised. She's not considering her age. She's not considering the, the condition of her body. She's considering something more real, more sure, more solid, more stable which was the one that made the promise. Finally, the word look is in the continuous sense, which means not just a casual glance, but means a stare. It means a steadfast gaze. 
It was a steadfast faith that brought the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Folks, you need to understand that the healing process takes place while we're looking at the promise. And the devil knows that. That's why he wants to get you looking at everything else. We are given instruction and expected by the Lord to think faith, speak faith, act faith, and keep it until the promise is fulfilled. By being occupied with our symptoms or feelings, we violate the conditions that God sets forth and turn off the switch to his power. Because the seed is God's word, and that seed has more power than you're going to need for whatever you need it for. I love what Smith Wigglesworth used to say almost everywhere he went. He would laugh at sickness. He'd laugh at disease. You know, uh, some people have an innate fear of stuff like that. I I used to have it, but uh, but it's going away from me. But there were some sicknesses and diseases I just didn't want to have anything to do with. I'd pray for somebody from across the room, you know, be healed. But uh, there were some things I just didn't want to get up close and personal with, you know. Brother Hagin said that he had that when he first started off too. Wigglesworth, I don't think he ever had that. He would laugh at sickness and disease. He would laugh at the things that people would shy away from. And the reason he would laugh is he would tell people, don't you realize that the one thing that's impossible for God is to break his word? That's a steadfast faith. And that's the faith that we're all expected to have. We look at people like Wigglesworth and we say, oh, wow, they had something special. Not really. They may have had a different call on their life than you and I have, but we have a mandate to develop the same measure of faith that God gives us all. In Hebrews chapter 11, talking about Moses as being part of the Heroes Hall of Fame, it says that Moses endured as by seeing him who is invisible. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Think about that for a minute. The evidence of things not seen. Not seen how? Not seen with the natural eye. Faith is the evidence of things you can't see with the optic nerve. But faith is is intended to be the things that you can see with the eye of faith. Faith is the evidence of what you can see from your spirit. To the man whose eyes, the eyes of his understanding, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, the eyes of our understanding being enlightened, that we would know what is the hope of his calling and so forth. To the person whose eyes are enlightened to the truth of God's word, faith is not a step out in the dark. It's a step onto the surest foundation that there is. Now, to the person that's going by the sight, natural sight, the optic nerve, then faith seems like the most irrational action in the world to them because they think faith is a step off into nothingness. Not so. To the person who can see from within, see from their heart, Faith is a step onto the surest foundation there is. To know that God's word is true. To have your eyes opened, your understanding, spiritual understanding enlightened. To where you know the truth of God's word, you're stepping off onto a surer foundation than than the foundation of the mountains of the earth. Faith is the most rational step there is to the person whose spiritual eyes are opened. That's the kind of people we need to be. F.F. Bosworth said something in, uh, in his book, Christ the Healer, 
that really got me to thinking. I never had considered it before. And he's, of course he's right. And he's, it's obviously true. But I never considered it before. Do you realize that you don't see with your natural eye? You don't see with the optic nerve? The optic nerve sends impulses to your brain and you see with your mind. We think because our eyes are right there and we think everything is coming through our eyes. Well, just the impulses are coming through our eyes. But it's not our eye that sees. It's our mind that sees. As a result of the information that it receives from the optic nerve. You know, think about that. You don't see, there's a lot of things you don't see that you trust in. You don't see the money in your, in your bank. When you write a check, you don't write that check based on the money you see in your bank with the optic nerve or with the natural eye. But you see it in your mind because you know what your balance is. If you keep up with it and balance your checkbook and stuff like that, you know how much money you have. So you know how much check of a check, how big a check you can write and still be underneath your balance. So what are you seeing with? You're seeing with your understanding, not with your natural eye. Now, some people think that if I can't see it with my natural eye, then I can't believe in it. Think about how foolish that is. If you would allow me to blindfold you and walk you down the street, is the pavement that you walk on any less real than when you could see it? It's just as real. The things around you, the trees, the cars going by. Everything around you is just as real as when your eyes were opened and, and, and open meaning not blindfolded to when you could see with your natural eye. But now you're going to have to depend on some things. If I'm walking you down the street, I'm going to have to tell you there's a, a, a raised place in the concrete right there. Step up a little bit or we're coming to the curb. Hold here and let's check the traffic. Now step down. There are certain things that I'm going to have to tell you about that you're going to have to rely on my description so that you operate effectively, right? That's what walking by faith is. The only difference is it's God that's describing what steps to take. It's his word that defines what steps we need to take. It's his word that defines what's ahead. It's his word that tells us turn right, turn left, hold here, wait, move forward, and so forth. As I said, faith is the most rational thing in the world because it's based on the greatest of facts and realities, God's word. You can't get anything more solid than that, folks. It sees God. It sees Calvary where disease and sin were canceled. It sees the promise of God and his faithfulness. What is more true than God's word? Faith sees the health and the strength given on the cross as already belonging to us. It receives the word himself, took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with what the eye of faith sees, the hand of faith takes. It grabs a hold of and says, it's mine, I have it now. You know, there's a scripture over in John chapter 9, verse 39, where it says that Jesus came to cause those who don't see to be able to see. Those that see not, that they might see. What does that mean? What is he talking about? He's saying that he came to show us the means whereby the things that we can't see with our natural eye, we can see from within. It's also interesting to notice that in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8, it tells us that Jesus... In talking to the churches, 
speaking to the churches, instructs one of the churches to anoint their eyes with eye salve so that they can see. To correct their blindness. Well, what were they blind to? They were blind to what belonged to them in Christ. Now, that was not when Jesus was here on the earth. That was after Jesus had been lifted up and seated at the right hand of God the Father that he instructs the church that is that those that are in the church that were blind, blind to the realities of the spiritual realities as defined in the word. To anoint their eyes with salve so that they could see. Isn't that the same thing as Paul praying that the eyes of our understanding, our spirits would be enlightened? In other words, to see what's real and see what's true. Now, folks, I want to I make a point to you, and I, I hope you can get this. I hope I make this clear. Why in the world would I doubt the promise of God because I have a pain in my body? Why would I doubt the reality of healing because I have a pain in my flesh? Would it make sense for me to doubt the the promise of Jesus' return, the second coming of Jesus, because I had a pain in my body? Well, is God more faithful to honor the promise of Jesus' return than the promise of healing? If God honors one promise, he'll honor every promise. So if pain in my flesh is not a worthy reason, a worthwhile reason, to doubt the promise of God concerning the second coming, why would it be a, a worthwhile reason to doubt the promise of healing? Can you see that? But that's not the way the devil works. The devil comes and he brings a pain and says, oh, it's not working. That's the same thing as the devil coming and bringing a pain to us and say, oh, Jesus won't return. Why? Because it's all the word of God. It's the same word, same God who promised. Walking by this better kind of sight, and that's what faith is. Walking by faith is walking by a better kind of sight. It's the happiest position you can take on the earth. Because the things that you see are better things. They're truer things. They're more real things. And they're things that bring what Peter called joy unspeakable and full of glory. I spoke of Jonah earlier in the belly of the fish. Jonah said, these are lying vanities. He talked about his conditions, his living conditions as being lying vanities. And said, I will look toward thy holy temple. And then he offered the sacrifice of Uh, The sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what looking at the things of God really looks like. That's the same thing Abraham did. Abraham was strong in faith giving glory to God. Folks you have a sure foundation. There is nothing more true than the promise you're standing on. Yeah but Pastor Mike it's been a while and it doesn't feel like it's working. That has no bearing on anything. What difference does it make how we feel? We're not operating how we feel. We're operating on the truth of God's word. The truth of God's word. Somebody once said that the things of God, faith in God, faith in God's word, real faith, is occupied with God's power and mercy and not with human weakness. Not like that. Because God says over and over to the weak, let the weak say, I'm strong. It says to them that have no strength or to them that are faint, he increases strength. It's almost as if we, when we stand on that which we can't see, God makes his strength available to us. It's almost as if that's the condition for his strength, and it is. Yeah, but I feel so weak. That has nothing to do with the promise of God. Yeah, but I just don't know if I'm going to make it. 
That has no bearing on the truth of God's word. F.F. Bosworth, I mentioned him a little bit ago. I was reading some things about his ministry here recently. And there are, uh, I like the, uh, I don't know about the the new um, versions of his book. has been reprinted several times. But the older versions of of the book, Christ the Healer, had these pictures of, of meeting halls, convention centers that were just packed to the gills. People that would come. And, and Bosworth, was the, he was the simplest kind of teacher. I, um, uh, on a, I got a hold of a, a recording that somebody had taken from an old wax recording back in the, the 1940s, I guess it was. And, um, and they, had, they just got a few seconds of it. It wasn't very long at all, just a few sentences, really. And so I'm expecting F.F. F. Bosworth, you know, with the, the healing ministry he had and the hundreds of thousands of people and testimonies that he had of healing, I'm expecting him to be this strong, booming voice type guy. And he sounds like uh, Don Knotts. You know, Barney on um, the Andy Griffith show, that, uh, I don't know what to relate to with the younger people. You may not know what that is. But he, he had a real mousy kind of voice to him, and, and it, it shocked me. It just stunned me because I, I know it's going to be just a little bit. I know I'm going to have to listen quick and rewind and, and, you know, go back to it and that kind of thing. And so I'm expecting this shaking voice, and it was a little mousy kind of voice. Believe God. It just shocked me. I had to listen to it several times and wonder, is this the right recording? Is this the right thing I'm supposed to be listening to? And he just simply outlined the truth of the word. But, oh, he had, a sh- he had a faith. He had an unshakable faith. He didn't have some kind of healing ministry where he laid hands on the sick and, and miracles took place. At least that's it's recorded. The people that were healed from his ministry were healed off of his, his uh, radio program. They were healed many times in his, uh, in his crusades, but it's not through healing lines. It's through the simple teaching of the word. They would just act on the word. He'd make the word so simple to them and show them, you can do this. People would receive their healing all over the place. Many times it was instant, but not always so. Bosworth seemed to, to, to uh, prefer if somebody's healing didn't come instantly. He said, he was the one that said that our, that our instant healings are sometimes a curse to us. Because when somebody has to stand in faith and be steadfast in their faith to receive, then they know what they've got. I guess it's the kind of the old adage, if easy come, easy go. If it comes too easy, we don't necessarily appreciate what we have. Hundreds of thousands of people were healed just because he made it simple. Just because he made it simple. You may not know this about him, but he retired from the ministry. And then when William Branham came along, he was uh, a man that God used in the office of the prophet. But he wasn't well grounded in the word. It's, it's an amazing thing to me. I, I, I'd love to talk to the Lord about this sometime. Because some of the people that God gave some of the greatest gifts and, and, and miracle ministries to were people that, that didn't have such a strong foundation in the word. And it would seem, in my thinking, it would seem that the people that were the, had the most... Uh, grounded, were the most grounded in the, the truth of the word, those would be the ones that would be, have the accompanying miracles. But that's not always the case. And so when William Branham came along, F.F. Uh, F. Bosworth was a much older man than, than he. He was in his 80s at that time. He recognized the weakness of his ministry. 
So somebody introduced him. And Bosworth uh, was, uh, uh, somehow it came around where, uh, where I guess it was the friend, the mutual friend that they had, talked Branham into bringing Bosworth along or inviting him to come along and hold the morning meetings. And so he did. And Bosworth knew that that was the plan of God. He knew that that was what God would have him to do. And his teaching of the word as the foundation for the miracles and the, the, the gifts, the unreal things, revelation gifts and healing ministry and, and stuff like that that happened in, in uh, Branham's ministry. It was much of the foundation for that. It gave a scriptural foundation for the gifts and the signs and the wonders. Bosworth was the one that when Branham would go to a town and, and uh, the churches would rise up and sometimes uh, because of the, the numbers of people that would, uh, that would be healed. And, and they would have to have semi-trucks to carry off wheelchairs and stretchers and, and crutches and things like that after a Branham meeting. Just hundreds and hundreds of, of these things left over and just piled up over in corners and out in the yard and stuff like that. So they'd, you know, instead of letting them go to waste, they'd try to recycle them, so to speak, to people that needed them because the people that brought them didn't need them anymore. And so that stirred up a lot of the medical community. And Branham was accused of practicing medicine without a license, which happened a lot with some of these evening evangelists. Wigglesworth in, in Sweden, Wigglesworth made a trip to Sweden, and the, uh, the medical community there accused him of practicing medicine without a license. So he didn't lay hands on anybody. He'd just pray for them across the room and get the same miracles. God seems to know what you're dealing with, you know. So when they accused Branham and brought this accusation against him, and it was a big deal, boy. I mean, it was hitting all the papers and, and just the whole thing. F.F. Bosworth is the one that went to the court and laid out their, their spiritual, spiritual, scriptural case for what they were doing and how they were doing it. It wasn't Branham. He didn't have the scriptural foundation. He just said, God tells me what to do, and I do it. Well, that doesn't always satisfy the court. But, boy, Bosworth tied these people up in knots. Scripturally and legally. He had such an unshakable faith. He knew all it took. All it took was a belief in the heart. No matter how weak you may seem to feel. Just the willingness. To believe and speak the word of God. And to hold steadfast. It puts you over every time. Puts you over every time. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, James is writing. James kind of gives us a different perspective because he's writing from the position of a pastor. It's the only New Testament uh, book that we have that's written from a pastor's perspective. James writes, beginning in verse 5, he says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering. That was Bosworth's hallmark scripture. Nothing wavering. Nothing wavering. That's what steadfast faith was for him. Nothing wavering. Now, he always talked about wavering as being influenced by your feelings. So, and he would substitute that out sometimes. Let him ask in faith, nothing influenced by your feelings. Let him ask in faith, nothing influenced by your feelings. That's good, isn't it? Let him ask in faith, nothing influenced by your feelings. Folks, all of our complaints are us being influenced by our feelings. All of the things that discourage us, 
that the devil uses to discourage us, all the things we go to God and ask, oh, Lord, what's this about? Why is this happening to me? That's all being influenced by our feelings. Let him ask in faith, nothing influenced by your feelings. For he that wavereth, or he that's influenced by his feelings, is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Now he would always use and tie up these uh, these verses of scripture with the, the story in Numbers chapter 21. Because he would focus on the fact that the only ones that were going to be forgiven and being healed in Numbers chapter 21 were the ones that would look upon the serpent. Let not the man that won't look, that won't fix his attention on it, that won't be influenced by what he's looking at, by won't fix his gaze and continue in his gaze upon the serpent, let not that man think that he's going to receive anything, neither forgiveness nor healing. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Why? Because a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. What's double-mindedness? Double-mindedness is wanting the promises that God, the, the blessings that God promises, but being influenced by your feelings in the meantime. That's being double-minded. Oh, yeah, I want the healing that the Bible says is ours. I want Jesus to heal me. But, Lord, I just feel so weak. That's double-mindedness. Why? Because God gives you the answer. Let the weak say, I am strong. To him that has no might, he increases strength. That's perfectly okay to say, Lord, I qualify. I have no might. So I need your strength. So how do I get that strength? Let the weak say, I am strong. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the weak be influenced by his weakness. Let the weak have a pity party because how weak he is. No, let the weak say I am strong. Let the weak say I am strong. Let not that man, the double-minded man, the man that's influenced by his feelings, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. Whether you know this or not, that's putting on the mind of Christ. It's putting on the mind of Christ. It's choosing to look at the word of God. Look at the promise of God's word. Instead of your feelings. Or what your neighbor's telling you. Or what your family's telling you. Or anything else that's around you. It's putting on the mind of Christ. It's putting on the new man. It's all the things that Paul talks about. Putting on the new man. It's putting on the armor of God. All these things are just different ways of saying the same thing. And that is renewing your mind to the word. And standing steadfast on the truth of God's promise. It's all the same thing. No promise of God can ever be influenced by your feelings. Because the word of God is true. All God's looking for is somebody to stand strong on it. All he's looking for is somebody that will take the word. Accept it and stand steadfast. In spite of their feelings. In spite of their circumstances. Maybe even in spite of what the doctor tells you. But to stand steadfast upon God's word. Psalm 107 verse 20 tells us. He sent his word and healed them. This is his way of healing both our souls and our bodies. 
He sent his word and saved you. The acting on the word. Did you feel worthy of receiving Jesus when you asked him into your heart? No, most of us had just heard some sermon about how much we needed him. And so we didn't feel worthy of him. But we did what the word says anyway. He sent his word and made us a new creature. In the same way, he sent his word and healed us. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with the faithfulness of the one who spoke the promise. The faithfulness of the one who spoke the promise. You know what makes the Heroes Hall of Fame in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11? You know what makes all those people worthy of being mentioned by the Holy Ghost? They were steadfast. That's it. You've got some gifted people and you've got some people that didn't have a gift anywhere in their life. You've got some people that were strong of character and you've got some people that just barely scraped by. The only thing that made them worthy of being in the Heroes Hall of Fame of faith is that they were steadfast. Something about them chose at that point in time in their life. And for some, it was the only, only one point in time in their life. But something about them caused each one of them to choose to not turn loose of the promise. And it made him a hero of faith. Do you realize that you can be a hero of faith? You can be strong, as strong or in some cases stronger than any of those people that were made mention of in Hebrews chapter 11. I always think about when I get to heaven, I want to talk to this one. I want to talk to that one. I want to talk to the other one. They may be standing in line to talk to you. Because for many of them, you have a greater experience and relationship with God than they ever had while they were here on the earth. See, I think about some of these guys and I think, wow, what was it like? Moses, what was it like? Moses is probably going to want to know from us, what was it like to have the power of God on the inside of you? Sarah received strength because she judged him to be faithful that promised. She judged him or considered him to be faithful that promised. Well, that would be something good for us to meditate on for a while. How faithful is the one who made the promise to us? Instead of looking at ourselves, what can we do and what can't we do and how do we feel and so forth? How faithful is the one that made the promise? How faithful is the one that said, by Jesus' stripes, we were healed? How faithful is he? Who said, whatever we believe in our heart and say with our mouth shall be. How faithful is he? He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would praise him for his goodness and for his wonderful works unto men. Let's all stand.